0: I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and go to John chapter 13, please, this evening. John chapter 13. We're marching our way through benchmarks of discipleship. What are the, if if um, if we could try to, uh, if I shift the analogy, turn it into mile markers or benchmarkers on the process of making and maturing disciples what would that look like and so far uh we've i' I'm gonna, I'm gonna just walk across like we're on the journey all right the first benchmark was trusting and that was uh, we've come to have a new lord new life and new love right we've confessed Christ as our lord uh, we have new life and that's exhibited and new love for God and for his people the second benchmark was belonging and The word that I tried to focus in on there was identifying with Christ through baptism, with his people, through membership, and with his mission by active participation in Christ's work to build his church. So trusting, belonging. And then the last one that we finished last Sunday night was growing. And there were three R's that were sort of the pegs there. The first was accepting responsibility for our spiritual growth. So instead of thinking of spiritual growth as being a passive activity, that we're just sort of, uh, we let go and let God, or we become passive, and and um, it just, we sort of ooze into growth that we're supposed to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We're supposed to take responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because he's at work in you to want and work for his good pleasure. So... So, rather than having a, a, a an understanding of spiritual growth that is feeling oriented, right? That I, I grow when I sort of feel like it, when I'm, when I, you know, when I've got some wind in my sails, then I'll really, I'll really grow or benefit or crisis experience oriented. The kind of up and down pattern that sometimes develops, where where we have to have some kind of a dramatic spiritual experience that charges the battery up, and then it'll gradually dwindle down, and we have to have something else come along to, you know, give us a, a super boost again. That in fact, it's supposed to be something uh, governed by a, a character-driven commitment to God. Right? We want to grow up spiritually, and so so we accept responsibility for engaging the disciplines that God has told us will train us for godliness. And that's the second R, the resources, right? And because it's growing grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that, that it's a grace, uh, it's grace-driven it's grace process, and and that has to be joined to faith, right? So God has given us the word of his grace, so we believe him, so we're in the word and the word in us, the throne of grace so we can find grace and mercy. So we're going to prayer, access to grace through prayer. The gifts that God has deposited in the body are for our building up. So we are committed to the life of Christ being lived out in the life of the church. Right, The exercise of the gifts are the work of Jesus Christ. When he ascended, he gave gifts. Right When we exercise those gifts, 1 Peter 4, it is so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So, so I'm exercising a gift so that God can be glorified, but it's being done through Jesus Christ. So it's Christ actually working through his body Uh, ministering grace through the gifts that he's given so that the body grows up into him. Those are the resources. And then the last we looked at last week would be that if we're really going to grow, we need to be uh, committed to the process of spiritual renewal, that we are putting off the old man, putting on the new man, being renewed in the spirit of our mind. Right, And that means that we'll be Uh, we'll be practicing a life of repentance where we are living uh, like the old person that we were before Christ. We will be repenting and seeking forgiveness from God about that. And it won't be just that we're repenting over that sin. We will want to be cleansed and replace it with Christ-likeness. And all of that comes from the work of the word in us, right? So it's Put off, put on, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We we're in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. All right, so that's three benchmarks. Fourth benchmark, under the word serving. All right, so, so here's, what I again, just trying to make sure, because you know, I always tell you guys when I teach preaching, right, it's, it's really clear up here. It doesn't always come out clear out here. Right? Because here's, I tell, you know, the way I say it is like, so you spend all these hours studying and you have all kinds of stuff more than what you say when you preach. And sometimes you can say stuff when you preach that in order to really understand what you said, you have to have all the other stuff in your head. Right? So part of the reason I keep backing up on this thing is because I'm trying to frame it out and it makes perfect sense to me. Right? So here's here if I'm looking out at an, a believer, someone who comes to our church, professes faith in Christ, how would I know that they actually are a disciple? What would be the what would be the evidence of them genuinely trusting in Christ? New lord, new life, new love. If they're actually going to be added to the assembly belong to the church, right? Not just you know, not just have their name on paper, they actually belong to the body. What would that look like? Well, they clearly have to identify with Jesus through baptism, right? They have to identify with Christ's people, that is, take their place among Christ's people as a part of that body, and they have to really be embracing the mission of Christ, right? So, you don't... um, you know, one of the one of the sad results of the church growth movement throughout much of the twentieth century was it really was about numbers more than it was about members. Right? It it was, you know, get the crowd as big as you can, not necessarily have people be committed to the Lord and to the congregation and to the task that Jesus gave us. And that's why you end up with sometimes, the you know, people talk about the 80-20 rule a lot, but, you know, the, the idea, right, that 20% of the people in the church are doing 80% of the work is precisely because of that mindset, right? You're not, you're not, you're not really, to be a part of the church, you're not really expected to do anything in a lot of churches. I mean, it might be good if you did, but honestly, you're just, you know, you're just sort of in the church. But, but the whole concept of the church as a body, I mean, how would, I mean, some of you can experience this, right? But how would you like it if half your body didn't, decided not to work? Right? And basically, it's like, oh, yeah, I got all these parts, but 80% of them don't do anything. Thankfully, 20% is keeping me alive. We'd we'd think about a physical body, it's in horrible condition, even if it was getting bigger and bigger,
1: right? We'd think that's ridiculous. No
0: healthy body can function like that. And we have Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12, Ephesians 5, where Jesus talks about the church as his body, and somehow we come to the church as a body and we're like, well yeah, sure. I mean, most people are just going to be sort of they just show up to a church service. They're not really like functioning. And I think I think we'd have to say based on the scriptures that that's a very unhealthy body. Right? So if someone comes into our assembly professing faith in Christ, and and are welcomed into the membership of the assembly the expectation is that that person will be looking for their place to serve because right? they're a part of a body now they're not just a you know a, a person in a pew a name on a, a list they're actually a member of a congregation, a body. So so we look out and go, okay, how are we doing discipling? Have they been been incorporated into the assembly in such a way that they are participating in it? Right, That's, that's why it's a benchmark. When you talk about someone growing Right? Are they showing the kind of responsibility it takes to begin to grow? Are they accessing the resources that God has for them? Are they committed to the process of spiritual renewal that Paul lays out? Right? And will they begin to be a servant of Christ and, and engage in that? All right? So it's moving in that way. And what I want to do, Lord willing, I, I, I've broken them all down into three parts um, and, and trying to do that. So the three parts we'll look at is the source of this benchmark serving, the substance of what it looks like, and the strength of it. All right. So tonight we're going to look at the source. And I, what I want us to do is see a connection that sometimes we may not see. Uh, and, and hopefully I can, I can get us to see this from this text and a few others, and that is the connection that God makes between love and service, right? Because here's, I mean, if I'm gonna put it into like a nutshell, right? That, that serving serving Christ flows out of love for Christ and 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 uh that dimension right that we love god we love our lord moves us to serve other people and and i want to show you that and and just co- take some time for us to think about it so john chapter 13 a familiar passage i believe uh jesus is just about ready to face his, his betrayal and crucifixion. He's going to start in what we call chapter 14, the farewell discourse, where he starts to teach them things to prepare them for his departure. Uh, but right here at the end of it, he, he gives what he calls a new commandment. Look at verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So here's, um, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to quick bullet point sort of the, the exposition of the, this passage. Uh, if you want to hear a longer exposition of it, you can go back few years ago when I preached through John. But what we have is a new era of discipleship. That's what verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. That that is not a brand new commandment, right? I mean, the Old Testament has the commandment to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So when Jesus says a new commandment I've given you, isn't like, hey, in the Old Testament, nothing was about love. Now it's about love. Here's Here's something brand new for you. That's not what's going on. And what's new is going to be the absence of Jesus. Up to this point, he has been present and directly involved in leading them. Now this commandment will lead them. All right, And, and a part of the reason I'd say it that way is the Apostle Paul picks up on this in the book of Romans and says that the overarching responsibility is to love one another because that fulfills all of the commandments. Right? It's sometimes we talk about Jesus establishing the law of love, right? That's the rule for his people. And so, what Jesus is getting them ready for is his absence and this new era of discipleship, especially for them as Jewish believers who prior to Jesus' coming had looked to the Mosaic law for their instruction and rule of life. Then Jesus came as a greater teacher than the Mosaic law. And now Jesus says, here's what's going to be the rule of life for you. All right, this is going to be the thing that is the overarching command and responsibility for you. And that's the newness of it. In fact, he sets a new standard here. And, it, and it's this, love one another even as I have loved you. All right, so the pattern that Jesus sets up is based on his love for them, which is going to be uh, powerfully displayed in just a few chapters in terms of chronologically, literally within hours, that Jesus is going to love them in such a self-sacrificial way, and that's the standard for how they should love one another. I'm going to love you by laying down my life for you. You need to love one another in the same way. And, And we know in part that that's what he means because in chapter 15, he says there's no greater love than to lay down your life and urges them to love one another like that. So it's actually a call to sacrifice on behalf of others for their good. All right, and this is this is my uh, this is my regular drum beating time. Okay, our world makes love a feeling and emotion, and that is not its primary reality. Its primary reality is that it's anchored in a decision to seek the best interest of some. Right, and that's that's proven in 1 John 4, where in 3 and 4, right, where it talks about this is love that he laid down his life for us, right? This is how love was manifest. God sent his son in the world so we should live through him. Here's love revealed that Christ became the propitiation for our sins. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Right. It does not mean that love is without affection. It means that it is primarily the choice to seek the best interest of the object loved. It's a commitment to that person. That's why the scriptures will talk about it as God's steadfast love. Right. That he loves in a way which seeks the best for the object of his love. And, and that's, that's, fundamental to what Jesus is doing, right? I don't, I mean, I'll state it more positively than what I was just going to say. We are completely misguided if we think Jesus went to the cross over feelings. Because the book of Hebrews says he despised the shame, right? So he wasn't like skipping his way to the cross. Oh, I love them so much. Right? He was in agony of soul in anticipation of what he was going to have to do. But he did it because he loved the Father. Jump! We're, we're going to leave 13. I think you can probably see this right across the page. Look at chapter 14, verse 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father... I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. All right, so here's, these are two things we should not pit against each other, right? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because he loved sinners and wanted to see them saved. Yes, true. But how often have you answered that because he loved the Father? All right, because that's what he says right here. So, the world will know that I love the Father, I'm going to do exactly as He commanded. Right? The Father sent the Son to make an atonement for sin. And the Son said, I'm going to go to the cross because I love my Father. So, it wasn't just, it is certainly true, oh, how He loves you and me. But deeper than that, is his love for the Father, his commitment to do the Father's will, right? And that the Father's love for us was costly in the sacrifice of his Son. The Son's love for the Father and for us was costly in the sacrifice of himself. And he says, love one another like that. Right? So he's not saying sort of look at each other and sort of somehow puff up feelings toward one another. It is move for the benefit of, a.k.a. serve. Because remember what Jesus said he came? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And what's the next part? and to give his life a ransom, right? How did Jesus define his sacrificial love? As serving. He came to serve by sacrificing himself as a ransom for sinners, right? He loved the church and gave himself up for her, right? He he loved us and gave himself up for us, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 says. So the standard for discipleship is as I loved you, Jesus says. So it's a new era, new standard, then a new mark of discipleship. And that's what verse 35 says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So So far, right, think about this in terms of the historical context. Up to this point, they were known as Jesus' disciples because he was with them and they were with Jesus, right? So remember how Peter got recognized at the high priest's house? Hey, he was with him, right? You're one of his. They were identified as a disciple because they were actually with Jesus, And Jesus was with them. But what's happening? Jesus is leaving. So how will people know that they're Jesus' disciples? Here's what Jesus says. If you have love for one another, like I've loved you. The authenticating mark of their discipleship is that they will, in fact, embody the love of Christ toward one another. That they will live out the, the love that Christ had displayed. Now, it's key to remember that is not how they will become disciples, but it's how they will be recognized as disciples. Okay, so we're gonna do a little bit of hopping around. Go over to the book of Ephesians, all right? Treat it almost like a sword drill. Get there fast, because I always wait until the pages are stopped. So you need to get there quickly because I'll be chomping at the bit up here. All right, Ephesians chapter 1. Now don't somebody, somebody's going to keep flipping their Bible just to see if I wait. Don't do that. All right. Ephesians chapter 1 and look at verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, Do not cease to give thanks for you. So here's Paul uh, writing about the Ephesians. Here's what I heard about you. You have faith in the Lord Jesus and you have love for all the saints. Go a couple more books farther. Colossians chapter one. This is a group of believers that Paul has never met personally. He's never been to Colossae. And, And look what he says about hearing when he hears about them chapter 1 verse 3 we give thanks to god the father of our lord jesus christ praying always for you since we heard of your faith in christ jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven so faith love and hope right and and here's what he says I heard about your faith, I heard about your love for the saints, and the love for the saints is anchored in the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Okay, And I'd, I'd love to unpack pack that more, but that's a part of the reason why we can love like Christ did. We're not attached to anything that we might be sacrificing. right? If, if love requires me to give something that I have, I don't have to cling to it because I have a hope reserved in heaven. Even if it means laying down my life for someone because I have a hope reserved in heaven, it's ultimately not a sacrifice that leads to loss at all. And that's the same pattern as Jesus, right? I said he despised the shame, but what does it say? Who for the the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That is, past the cross, past the contradiction of sinners against himself was a joy set before him. That's why he could sacrifice like that with his hope in his father. And you and I can sacrifice because our hope has been anchored in heaven. Go to First Thessalonians chapter four. So, Here's Paul saying, listen, I know of your, uh, your genuineness as a disciple because I've heard of your faith and the love that you have for the saints. Why would Paul say that? Well, Because Jesus said, here's how you'll know that this person's a disciple. And he could be that confident about it because look at what Paul says about this subject in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And pick it up in verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Think about what he's saying there. right, he could say, and he said in the first chapter that he was confident of God's choice of them because of their response to the gospel. He now can say, listen, I, in one way, I really don't have to say anything to you about loving your brothers and sisters in Christ because you have been taught by God to do that. But it's like, you know, I don't need to mention this and, You know, or like preachers. This person needs no introduction just as you give them an introduction. Paul says, well, I don't need to write to you about this because you've been taught by God. But let me just say this, excel more. Right? So here's the point. Everyone who's truly born again has had, go back to that trusting, has had a new love placed in their heart by God. They are taught by God to love God and to love God's children. And that's so true that the apostle John can say that if you hate your brother, the love of God does not abide in you. And that if you say you love God, but hate your brother, you're a liar. And the lying's about your love for God, right? They're, they're, there is a profound work of god in the soul of the christian the person who has been born again that that produces in them a love for god and a love for god's children and that gets exhibited in what jesus said right you'll love one another like i've loved you you will practice love toward one another because you're taught by god so when When Paul could hear about the Ephesians or the Colossians, he could be filled with joy because he hears about their faith and their love for the saints, right? He could be confident of the Thessalonians because they are exhibiting the love of God for brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the work of God. Okay, so let me
1: take these things in time together. If you
0: have this love that is the love of Christ, then you will be serving other people.
1: Right? Because think about it. Jesus said, Love one another like I loved you. And if we have that kind of love,
0: it has to flow in seeking the best of other people, God's children. It can't can't be corked up, right? And that's why John says in 1 John 3, if your brother has need and you have the resource to meet that need and you close your heart to them, how can you say that the love of God is in you? Right? It,
1: it, It has to break out. It, it will be the case, right? If
0: you love like Christ loves, you will love like Christ loved. It will show up in service. It will show up in ministry to other people. And that's why Paul could be confident of them, right? I'm, I'm just pushing you farther through the New Testament. Go to the book of Hebrews chapter 6 one of my favorite texts in terms of this concept, because I think it, it, it's, uh, it's liberating, right? In my mind, it's liberating. Look at, look at verse 10 of chapter six. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Okay, so this is a text that I think really roots our service for Christ in God. It is God-centered, uh, and and it starts with um, a, a, a basically a statement of promise that's stated negatively. All right, so if you just if if you uh, take the word not out of the first line and change the word forget to remember, <laughs> right? It, it it actually not and un. For God is just. For God is righteous, so as to remember your work and love. Right? He states it negatively. God is not unjust to forget right? What he's saying is God's righteousness requires him to remember what you've done in love for his name. It's rooted in the character of God that nothing done as a display of love for his name will be forgotten by God, right? And and why why do I find that liberating? Because it it frees you from caring about whether anybody else remembers it. I mean, it's, always, it's nice to get, you know, pats on the back or thanks, but none of that matters compared to
1: God remembering, right? That, that
0: God will never forget anything that you have done in love for his name. And if you get that then you don't have to have the limelight. You don't have to have people see you. You don't have to have people pat you on the back or applaud you. If they do great, I'm not saying against, but if if that if you're living Jesus to say Matthew 6 to have your righteousness be seen of men, then you actually get your reward in full when they see it. I mean if what you really wanted was them to see you do this service and recognize that you did it if that's what you really wanted then then you got your reward great
1: and it's gone but he says your father who sees in secret will
0: reward you openly right so 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 he's saying the motivation is centered in God, his righteous character, his promise not to forget what you do. But notice the connection at the second part of the verse. It's love for his name. How? In having ministered to and in still ministering to the saints. That's the second liberating thing about it. Right? Because... Because you're doing this ultimately for God. It's love for his name that propels you to serve others. Because here's the thing, you'll learn at some point in your life that not everybody you serve actually reciprocates that service with kindness or love. In fact, Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 12 to the Corinthians. I mean, talk about a group of people that that ought to have loved him, but they didn't. And, And his words are, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you the more, am I to be loved less? In other words, I'm I'm I'll, I everything that I have, spend. Everything that I am, be spent. I will give up everything I have and everything I am for your souls. Even if I love you more and you love me less.
1: How could he say that? Because he was ultimately doing
0: it in love for the name of God right? He was anchoring it in his love for God, and therefore he loved God's children. And his love for God's children wasn't based on reciprocation. Hey, if I love you, will you love me? It was, no, God loves you, so I'm going to love you, right? And remember, take it back to the love. It's. The love of Christ. Okay, and that's. Am I hit it again and again and again? Because, you know, if I could, if I could somehow come up with a word that wouldn't, uh, you know, wouldn't create connotation in our heads of how we feel, but but actually focus on what we do. Right. I love God, so I keep His commandments. And one of his commandments is that I love you. So because I love God, I'm going to seek what's best for you. I'm going to pursue what serves you, what is, is in God's best interest at work in your life. Because God's best interest worked out in your life are actually in your best interest. Right, If God's goals for you are accomplished, those are the best thing for you. So I'm going to work for your joy, the way Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I'm going to be a servant for your joy, and that joy is always found in God. It's controlled and propelled by that. Service flows from love for God. And service comes as a response to and reflection of God's love through Christ. Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God, walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. All right, so it's a response to the love of God through Christ, and it's a reflection of God's love through Christ. That's why it always translates into service, right? It seeks what's best for that person. So here's here's where I'd like us to just just if I could just challenge us on it, right? So, and this is you know just think about what I'm saying, uh, because my goal my goal this is this is going to be the the you know the preacher shot that's sort of guilt inducing, okay? But you got to have that one before we get to the remedy. All right, so here's what I would say. A lack of service reveals a lack of love. All
1: right, so if you're doing nothing for God's people, it reveals a lack of love for God
0: and a lack of love for God's people. Because if you loved God, you would care about the things that matter to God and God's children matter to him, right? Acts 20, 28, Paul challenges the elders at Ephesus and says, take heed yourselves and over the flock of God of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And he says, shepherd them, the flock, shepherd the flock, which he purchased. With his own blood. All right? So so here's here's the the layered appeal. All right? You need to pay attention to this because you have a responsibility from the Spirit over God's flock, which He purchased with the blood of Christ. All right, so why should you take care of your responsibility? Well, because of who gave it to you? and whose it is, and the cost that he paid for it, right? So, so here's the thing that would translate then, I think, into every believer. When you're told to love your brother and sister in Christ, they are your brother and sister in Christ because they're God's child purchased
1: by the blood of Christ, Right. Do, you, do you care about your children?
0: Right. God cares about his. He cares about them enough to give his son as the price for their souls.
1: So if we love God, we'll love his children.
0: We'll serve them. If we don't serve, we don't love. All right, That's the reality of it. Lack of service is a lack of love. Lack of love leads to lack of service. Because here's, here's where we start to move to what I hope would be maybe a, a way to help us frame it for thinking. right? So then that means our service is actually an overflow of our love. right? Because here's, here's what can happen is, so you hear this, you go, okay, I got to get, get served, got to get served, got to get served. And I'm actually going deeper than that. I'm actually saying, no, the service is an overflow of love. The thing you have to focus on is the love. Right? You need, you and I need to constantly be be probing the depths and the breadth and the height of God's love for us in Christ. We need to constantly be thinking about how much God has loved us and the way in which he loved us through his son so that that love fills into our hearts and then overflows into service, right? Because if all you do is go out here, okay, I got to get busy, got to get busy, got to get busy, and you're doing it in your own strength or your own own efforts, right? It's not going to go well. Right? It's, it's going to end up potentially in you either being burned out because you don't have spiritual, supernatural strength flowing through you, the love of Christ constraining you to live for Him rather than for yourself. So you might burn out, or you might get a little angry and bitter about it. You know, what I mean, people populate churches who've given up on the service thing because. Somebody didn't respond to them well. Like, "Oh, well, that's the way they're going to be. Forget it. I mean, I try to do something good, and look what happens. And so they just sort of recede. And here's what I'd say is that's someone who is trying to serve in their own strength, in their own wisdom, in their own power. They weren't actually serving as an overflow of wonder and response to the love of Christ that then goes, man, I've been loved so abundantly and so faithfully. I mean, think about it. How many times have I been anything but reciprocating to the love of Christ? I mean, he's loving me, with such immense and steady flow of kindness, and I'm a selfish idiot. And he keeps loving me. He keeps loving me. And then I go across the street to go to love someone else, and they don't react the way I want, and I'm like, forget you. Obviously, that's not the love of Christ flowing through me because if I respond to other people in a radically different way than the way God has responded to me, something's broken in the equation. Something's out of whack, right? It has to flow from an ever-deepening, ever-widening appreciation of the love of God in Christ so that I love his name in ministering to the saints and still ministering. And in Hebrews, that's in the context of very sacrificial ministry, joyfully, right, joyfully accepting the seizure of their property for having shown love to God's people. It was costly love for them. And that's why the writer says, God won't forget. God won't forget. You have a helper. You have one who will protect you. You have one who will remember. So lay it on the line. Right? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. Because there's nothing that you do for Christ that will be forgotten by God. So, we have to see ourselves and others through the lens of relationship to God. I'm the recipient of His love. And that love should produce a responsive love. I should see others as the objects of His love. Therefore, I love them because God loves them. Right? We've got to break the stranglehold in our culture. Of, of making ourselves the subject, right? Serving is the reflection of God's love for me in my heart and then out toward others because he loves them, right? He loves them, so I should seek what's best for them because I love him. So whenever, whenever you get tired or tested, You get tempted to sort of pack it in and not serve. The answer isn't to just keep running on fumes. The answer is to step back and fill up the tank. I need to think about Christ and the cross and how much he loves me and the promises he's given to me and how when it's least comfortable to love somebody might be the best display of my love for
1: God. Right? When, when
0: it costs me nothing, it's not really much of a sacrificial act of love. And so if I really love God, then I will be actually looking for places where I can extend his love without feeling like some immediate payback because I remember that he remembers. Let's pray. Father, please help us to think carefully about this. I hope that that our hearts of service will be uh, empowered by an awareness of your love for us and our desire to make the love of Christ known to other people. Lord, there is... There's so much uh, so much animosity in our day, so much conflict and tension. And sometimes that's even among God's people. What a different thing it was in the book of Acts when the conflict was coming from outside of your people, toward your people, and they were loving one another in such an incredibly sacrificial way that they could have this mixture of favor with the people while facing persecution from the religious authorities because there was something authenticating about that kind of love, something real. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to be so much captured by your love that we would live for Christ and love like Christ.
1: We ask it in
0: his name. Amen.